Montel here and welcome to this edition of Free Thinking. How's everybody doing? I hope you're having a great day. I'm going to take the time today to utilize this opportunity to shout out very happy Veterans Day to all those veterans in this country today. And for those of you who don't know, we have about 17.4 million veterans in the United States right now that have served our country in multiple wars since World War II. And I mean, World War I, honestly, I believe that we may have one remaining World War I veteran alive, and then a World War II veterans, we have somewhere, when we don't know exactly, but somewhere near 325,000 of the 16 million Americans who served in World War II still alive today in 2020. And those numbers may change within, you know, a month or two, but, you know, that's close to it. And, you know, if we think back on World War II, and just to put it into perspective, that war cost America in today's dollars trillion. Just think about that for a second. $4.1 trillion to literally, I think, redraw the map on the entire planet and also to establish the lines of demarcation that we have now dealt with for almost 50 years. But $4.1 trillion. That's insane. And that's what we spent to try to ensure that the world had those countries that wanted to had the right to democratic societies. So I want to do a big shout out today to our veterans and say thank you so much for your service. And I know that that's such a cliche saying these days because so many people will see a veteran walking by in the airport and say thank you for your service and turn around and look away. And Though I know maybe in your heart of hearts, you feel as if, oh, that's something I need to do just to make them understand my gratitude. I think it's just a saying that falls short these days, because rather than just spitting out a couple of words, maybe what we should be doing is turning those words into more action. And our veterans need so much today, and there's so much that we could all do to help them that cliche sayings are getting a little old. And I think that I hope more and more people recognize that and will start trying to figure out what I can do for a veteran rather than just saying, thank you for your service. I mean, you know, we got to think about it. The fact that right now we do have an all volunteer military and at a time when we have a nation made up of over 340 million people, You know, we have serving on active duty at any given time in this country, right around, you know, a million and a half people in the last 10 years. That's a very, 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 very small percentage of a nation that's doing what we ask them to do, and that's support and defend our Constitution against all enemies, foreign and domestic. They keep you from having to send your child off to do this. And it's really so bizarre because I remember... Thinking back, you know, and I'm going to date myself here a little bit, but it's okay. I entered the service in 1974. I came in, honestly, on what's called a delayed entry program. So at the beginning of 19, at the end of 1973, I signed up. And then I entered when I graduated from high school and when my boot camp uh, slot opened. So I went away to boot camp, but I got what's called the delayed entry program. And I came in during Vietnam time where this country was divided 
as divided as it could be back then over the issue of war. And I remember, you know, being in high school and remembering, you know, kids that were going off to participate in rallies and calling every, you know, I was going to high school during, you know, the Cali and the My Lai massacre time when everybody thought anybody who wore a uniform was a baby killer. And people used to say that openly. And, you know, I also remember, though, that when I came into service back in 1974, very strange, about 70% of our Congress and Senate had served, had wore a uniform. And it's so interesting that back then, close to 70% of our Congress and Senate had served. We had a armed forces that was made up of right around three million to three to four million people, um, about three to four million on active duty, which back then we only had a population in this country right around 220, 230 million people, 100 million less than we have today. So that was a larger percentage of the number of people who were serving as a percentage of the country. And I remember thinking back, you know, and now to, uh, just looking back at it over time, back then, oh, plus 70% of our Congress and Senate had served. Nowadays, less than 17% of our Congress and Senate ever put a uniform on their back. But these guys are so willing and so quick to send our boys and young, young you know, daughters and sons off to die. And I thought, that's really so strange that we're living at a time when we have hawks in government who wouldn't put a uniform on, but they are so quick to want to send somebody else's child off to die. Think about it. Just a little bit. Think about it. But like I said, I entered the service in 1974 um, and did so, and I really never really talked to people and expressed my reasons for doing so. But maybe I'll do that today. I literally, I was, I was a kid, you know, uh, of the 60s and the 70s. You know, uh, born in an area where, you know, I was born in a little, uh, I was born in really in the, one of the largest ghettos in all of America was something that was called Cherry Hill, Baltimore, Maryland. And my parents moved from Cherry Hill out to the suburbs outside of Baltimore throughout all of my elementary school years, my junior high school and high school years. And, you know, like I say, there was, you know, demonstrations going on all over my state and all over the country uh, during my, especially from the late 70s or, sorry, late 60s to early 70s, demonstrations and, and protests against the war. Those protests against the war is what really, ended our draft and turned our military into a 100% volunteer service. And I, during my high school years, I, you know, I think I did pretty well in school. I was participating in a lot of different things. I, um, you know, the first two years, you know, ninth and 10th grade, I, you know, played sports and, and you know, everything from basketball to football to ran track and, you know, I was also a member of the, you know, Thespian Society and worked in, you know, school student politics, but then got deeply involved in student politics in my latter part of my 10th grade year, my 11th to 12th grade year. As a matter of fact, you know, I was uh, my 10th and 11th grade years, I was a student 
you know, involved in what was called the Maryland Association of Student Councils and the Chesapeake Regional Association of Student Councils. I ran for president of my class in 11th grade and got it. So I was the president of my class in 11th and 12th grade. In the 12th grade, I was a student assigned to the Board of Education in Anne Arundel County, the first student picked to serve on the Board of Education. Um, they wanted student representation there, and I got an opportunity to do that. I was very, very proud of that. And was very, very active in school, but I also was very, very active in my social life, which seemed to, you know, be more important to me back then. But, you know, I, I sang in a band and played in a band and a band and played in nightclubs all over the Maryland area and got so caught up in all of that that I really didn't pay that close attention to selecting a college once I graduated. And so, you know, graduation was looming and I found myself sitting in a situation where, uh-oh, I didn't do the hard work. And at the same time that that was going on, we had a friend of the family um, and just to, I throw it out there just to say so people understand, it was a Caucasian friend of our families who was a guy that was a really a closer friend of my brother's than he was to me, but and was a, a year ahead of me in high school two years out of me high school. And when he graduated, he enlisted in the Marine Corps. And, you know, everybody thought that's really wild that Mike did that. And he went away and, you know, got deployed. As a matter of fact, he was deployed to Gitmo. And in Gitmo, meaning Guantanamo Bay, uh, Cuba. And while deployed there, was injured. And came home. And I remember, you know, one of the, the second day after he went home and he stayed with his parents and visited his relatives, his close blood relatives, he literally came over and paid a visit to my parents and my brother and my home. And he came over in that Marine Corps uniform and that Marine Corps uniform just impressed the heck out of me. Um, he was a guy that I thought was kind of like a knucklehead who literally was straight as an arrow. I mean, just, you know, stood up straight and tall and was proud of the fact that he had served and was serving and, you know, was anxious to get back into the fray. He hurt his uh, arm and, um, you know, I was just so impressed by his discipline that I asked him, you know, I said, Dude, what's this all about? And he said, well, it's cool. I mean, I, I really love it. And I think, you know, it's an opportunity for me to get my head on straight and get the GI Bill and, and you know, when I get out, I'll be able to go to college and be able to move on in my life. And I was like, wow, you know what I mean? GI Bill. I've been thinking about that. I, at this point in time, I was the youngest of four. My parents were struggling to send my siblings to college, though one of my siblings ended up getting a job at the college. And my, you know, uh, second, uh, my older sister, Chloe, who wasn't the oldest, but, uh, you know, she literally went off to college and immediately got a job in the dorms working as like, you know, I think a dorm monitor where they were paying her and they were actually helping to augment her education. So that took a little bit of strain off my parents and my older sister, you know, went to a few years of college and she ended up you know, dropping out. My brother went to college and he ended up dropping out. And my parents, you know, had spent a lot of money and, and were, you know, kind of, you know, strapped, weren't really ready to pay that bill for me to go to college. And I thought, well, what better way to lessen the load on them if I pay for it myself after I get this thing called the GI Bill? So 
I went ahead and signed up. I went down, I enlisted, I talked to my father, I talked to my mother, and I said, this is what I think I really want to do. My father was like, you know, okay, I think it'll be good for you. He thought, you know, why why go in the, the toughest one, though, at the time, the Marine Corps? You know, in the Marine Corps, you know, we were still training troops to be deployed to Vietnam. So and this is pre-congressional investigations at both Paris Island and San Diego. So, you know, there was a pretty bad reputation of, you know, going to boot camp in the Marine Corps and being abused, if you will. And, you know, I, I thought it out really well and talked to my, my father about it. And I was like, you know, I don't think I'm going to have to worry about that. And I think, you know, Mike gave me some key things to do when in boot camp. And, you know, and I practiced those things at home. Like, you know, he taught me how to stand at attention before I even left to go to boot camp. Taught me how to stare, stare at a wall and, you know, I'd have my brother come by or some other people come by and, you know, do weird things like push me or, you know, and just try to get my attitude in check before I even got down there. And so, you know, I arrived at boot camp, I think, with a little bit of knowledge of what would take place, you know, there enough to be able to prep myself and understand that, you know, I had it to really try to center in on some of that internal discipline. And, you know, I should also back up and say that, you know, I was raised in a house where, you know, discipline was, uh, you know, the number one tenant of my father's you know, household. I mean, he, he demanded excellence and um, some of that was beaten into me in a way that, you know, it helped me when I was in boot camp because I realized that, you know, I'm going to do everything I can to keep those drill instructors off my back, but I'm also going to do everything I can to perform at the highest level that I can. And, you know, I did so. So I, I went to Marine Corps boot camp in 1974. I entered uh, before uh, Christmas. As a matter of fact, I spent Thanksgiving and Christmas Day in boot camp, uh, New Year's Eve in boot camp. Um, I remember Christmas Day was the day where it was the only day that we had off uh, the entire time I was there. And I remember we had the day off to sit on our footlockers and shine our shoes. That was Christmas Day. I did go to Mass that morning. And, you know, um, I was very fortunate to be able to, to go do that. And, you know, um, spent um, I was one of those days that I will remember for the rest of my life, you know, basically on one knee out in an open field listening to a Marine Corps chaplain who delivered a sermon that at the time, and I know people may, you know, get a little weird with me for saying it, but, uh, you know, was one of the most racist experiences of my life, racist experiences of my life. Christmas Day, Marine Corps boot camp, 1974, Paris Island, South Carolina. Uh, why? Because... This chaplain, literally, when he broke into his sermon, broke into a sermon about, you know, how honored he was to be in boot camp with Paris Island to be with uh, people who were focused on preserving our democracy and protecting the United States of America while their dirty peers and were out protesting the war that we were all getting ready to go off and fight. 
And I remember him distinctly using the N-word in his sermon two times. And I was like, are you kidding me? This is a man with a cross on one side of his uniform. And I think he was, I think he was a major, but he could have been a captain. Uh, But, you know, military insignia on this side and a cross on this side. And this guy let the N-word come out of his mouth talking about people protesting. I was like, are you kidding me? I just didn't, you know, it just didn't compute. And I went back and I remember being pissed off the entire day, sitting there shining my shoes to the point that, you know, I did it to the point that almost my elbow hurt because I was so angry. I was pushing so hard on my boot. And, you know, we weren't even allowed to talk to each other. We're in boot camp, so we were privates, you know, and you know, and, and uh, privates weren't allowed to even interact with each other. And um, I remember that there were kind of maybe one other, two other people in my uh, platoon that went to that mass. Who we all just every once in a while looked up at each other and shook our head, like, "Did we really hear what we heard this morning?" And I don't say that in any way, shape, or form to cast an aspersion on the Marine Corps or cast an aspersion on boot camp. If the aspersion was cast, it's cast on that individual. But I remember it affecting me in a way because I thought, you know, I hope that I didn't just enlist in something that's going to be nothing more than a perpetuation of my greatest fears which was hate. And fortunately, it was not. Because, you know, again, I was what they called platoon guide, so I carried the flag, you know, in, in uh, my platoon um, and ended up, you know, graduating and being, you know, meritoriously promoted um, out of boot camp uh, to a rank of PSC on graduation. And... Uh, my orders came through and I got, you know, what I really had put down for and I wanted to go to school. And, you know, I um, had, you know, uh, applied for what was called communication electronics school. And that was located at 29 Palms, California. So, and 29 Palms, if you don't know about it, is the home of Desert Warfare Training right now for the United States Marine Corps. And I believe even the Army trains out there uh, on occasion. And uh, 29 Palms, um, when I got there, this is in the middle of Mojave Desert, by the way, guys, about I don't know, 80 miles outside of um, uh, Palm Springs in the middle of the desert. I don't remember there ever being a cool day out there, even in the dead of winter when I arrived. Um, but it was a, 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 an incredibly rewarding experience because I showed up and I happened to show up just at a time when the administrative troop handler's office was short personnel administrators. So when I arrived there, I arrived there being meritoriously promoted to PFC. That means I'm one rank above the lowest rank. And I got there and there was an opening in the Ascension, a sessions office. And there was a gentleman there, it was Gunny Fraley. And uh, Gunny said, you know, we could use a guy here. I want to push your school out, you know, six weeks and uh, you're going to work right here. 
And I was like, dang, I really want to go to school right now. And But then again, to work in the assessor's office meant that, you know, I got an opportunity to do what's called troop handling when all the new other people came to the base. I was a person who processed them, got them off into where they had to go to. And, you know, I jumped in with both feet and uh, worked as hard as I could to try to do the best job that I could. And that got rewarded because I got very promoted to Lance Corporal for doing that. So I picked up two promotions really quickly um, before all of my peers. And, uh, you know, the guy came to me one day and said, you know, dude, I, why, why are you even here? You should be going to college. And that's where you should have gone before you came here. Because if you went to college, you could be an officer in Marine Corps. And I was like, really? I could be one of the guys with the silver and gold on their college? Said, yeah, you could have been. But we have a program that you could probably, you know, see if you could apply for and if they pick you, you could go away and go to the Naval Academy. And I was like, the Naval Academy? That was a place that was right down the street from where I live. It was all those guys that ran around in those, they look like uh, ice cream men uniforms. He said, yeah, that place. And I was like, wow, I didn't know that. He said, yeah, you ought to apply. So I applied to the Naval Academy prep school and um, went through the process and got selected to go to the prep school. And the Naval Academy Prep School used to be in a place called Bainbridge, Maryland, but got moved to uh, Newport, Rhode Island um, that year. And um, I was like, yeah, I think I, I, I need to do this. And I literally, and what the prep school was about was it was a place that they literally would go and take core courses that you needed to, you know, number one, take the SATs and ACTs. And, but two, because I had been out of school, it was a way to kind of reorient that gyro and get you back into thinking about studying and taking classes. So, you know, I applied and, you know, I, I needed to have a senator and a congressman or, and um, I got the senator from Maryland and uh, Congressman Barbara Mikulski at the time, who was my congresswoman, literally wrote the recommendation for me to uh, be selected at the prep school, and I got the selection and uh, marched off smartly. Got transferred to Newport, Rhode Island, and where I spent a year, you know, taking classes. And it was very, very, very interesting. I got selected to go to the prep school along with 39 other Marines, or 40 of us that, you know, were assigned. I was the only African American. Um, I get assigned to the prep school, and, um, you know, it's a full year of classes, then you graduate from the prep school, and then you, uh, during that period of time, your application to the Naval Academy is sent in, and, you know, you pray that you get selected to go to the Naval Academy. Well, you know, out of the 40 of us that, you know, entered the Naval Academy prep school in that year, 75 to 76, only, I think it was 19 of us graduated uh, from the prep school, and out of the 19 of us that graduated, only 12 of us received appointments to the Naval Academy. And out of the 12 of us that received that appointment to the Naval Academy, only four of us graduated and I was one of four. So we had a 90% attrition rate and uh, I made it to the Academy and, you know, it was very, very fortunate, but that also was part of the reason for my success because I entered the Naval Academy you know, and there was about, you know, that year, I think we had 60,000 applicants to the Naval Academy and only like, you know, a little over a thousand, close to 1,100 were selected to go to the Naval Academy. And, 
you know, um, the majority of those entering the academy weren't from places like the Naval Academy Prep School. So they had no military experience whatsoever. So I entered the academy and I should say, you know, I was selected for corporal and actually got promoted to corporal the night before I entered the Naval Academy. So I received my promotion certificate, signed it, and then got discharged out of the Marine Corps and then re-enlisted in or reassigned or did what's called an inter-service transfer into the Navy. And I transferred from, you know, across the river from the Naval Academy into the Navy and then went to the Naval Academy the next day and entered there. I think it was on July 5th where we entered and uh, uh, started my, you know, uh, a four-year stint at the Naval Academy. But I walked in the door with blood stripe on my, you know, right leg and on my legs and, and blood stripe being a Marine Corps, you know, stripe that goes up your pants. And um, I uh, had the experience of having served, which kind of put me a little bit ahead of my peers who had entered the academy. And it also, you know, made the upperclassmen kind of just a little bit reticent to jump down my throat because I knew how to stand at attention. I knew how to, you know, properly align my uniform. I knew how to salute. I knew how to accept orders. I knew how to, you know, keep my head forward and straight and locked in in a, you know, a position of attention. I knew all of the commands. So I was a little bit ahead of my peers. And, you know, another thing I also, while at 29 Palms, and it's something, you know, I was a martial artist when I was in high school and, you know, shifted over to boxing when I was in the Marine Corps and, you know, boxed in several boxing smokers out of 29 Palms. That's what they used to call them in the day. And so I was a pretty good boxer. As a matter of fact, during Plebe Summer, I won the Plebe Summer Brigade Boxing Championship for welterweights, and which made me, gave me a chance. And back then, in the early 70s, up until mm, I think the mid 80s, boxing was a you know mandatory uh, class that you had to take. But because I won the championship, I got to validate that. So I never had to go to any boxing classes. Whenever boxing was on the, my gym schedule, I got to sleep an extra hour a day. So, um, and I also, you know, had a little bit of a reputation because people understood that, you know, back then it wasn't official, but, you know, you could always call somebody out. You could always say, well, join me in the brick, you know, and uh, uh, a lot of people were hesitant to do that with me. And I was very fortunate that, you know, I I kind of had this little bit of a mystique around me that helped me get through my entire plebe year without being hassled as much as others. Um, but, you know, uh, my four years at the Naval Academy were, you know, a solid, rough four years. Uh, you know, academically, I don't think I was probably one of the best students in the world. Um, I could have been a better student. I could have paid more attention. I could have, could have, would have, should have and um, didn't, but I did just enough to get by and I got by um, academically. Um, you know, I remember in you know, my first year, I, I, uh, I never failed a class in my life, but I failed physics my first year. I ended up having to take it again in summer school to pass it. I took what was called physics for rocks, but I, 
I, I literally, you know, it was a tough class for me. And then that math became one of my better subjects. And, you know, I, I hunkered down and, and did what I needed to do to get it done. Um, Chinese was my language at the academy, which served me well because uh, right before I graduated, and unbeknownst to me then, unbeknownst to, you know, the military then and doctors that I uh, ended up seeing, I ended up suffering what now, looking back in hindsight, was probably my first episode or bout with MS right before I graduated from the academy. And, and it was commensurate with my pre-commissioning immunizations, which we were told that, you know, um, I unfortunately was one of those guys that was in a line. And back then the U.S. military used the gun that they would set to give you immunizations. And um, I heard that our, my class and the first hundred guys that went through the line to get the shot, the theory typhoid, literally got an overdose of the shot. And that literally set me into an immune response and that overloaded my body. And now doctors can look at it now and say that that immune response that overloaded your body was probably what triggered MS to start in you, but it would have started in me anyway later on in life, but it just triggered it to begin then. And what happened was I literally um, went almost half blind in my left eye, the scotoma I thought I got really huge, scotoma meaning the blind spot. And, you know, it sent me to the hospital, in and out of the hospital for almost 12 weeks. As a matter of fact, I graduated from the academy. I'm one of the only people in the history of the Naval Academy to walk across the stage, receive their diploma, throw my hat in the air, and not be commissioned on the same day. And because they put me in a medical hold, and I was considered not physically qualified for a commission on graduation day. And I literally ended up serving and staying on active duty under the rank of midshipman for almost six months. I got paid half an ensign's pay. Um, and the rank midshipman is a rank that was and is still considered a wartime rank. So during the war, when we actually deployed midshipmen from the Naval Academy, you literally served on ships and served on active duty, being paid half an instance pay because you hadn't completed all your requisite requirements to get a full commission. I was got to serve with that rank until, you know, I over the course of six months in my sight started coming back a little bit, didn't come back completely. But I uh, came back to the point that I could be commissioned and called NPQ, which is not physically qualified. Um, I got an NPQ commission as a special duties intelligence officer because they gave me two choices, either special duty intelligence, cryptologic officer, or supply corps. And I picked the special duty intelligence officer. And because I had had language experience, they figured uh, they could train me in another language. So instead of continuing with Chinese, they sent me to the Defense Language Institute, Monterey, California, for the language of Russian. And um, I went off right after I was finally commissioned and allowed to leave the Naval Academy area. I was, you know, um, I first got 
uh, assigned to uh, Pensacola, Florida, where I went through cryptologic school and training and then did some of my cryptologic training in uh, San Diego and then went on to uh, in my first Naval Security Group activity uh, assignment, which was on Guam. Spent three or four months on Guam before I was literally sent on deployment into the middle of the Indian Ocean for nine months on the USS Kitty Hawk in the U.S. back then. It was uh, Halsey in the USS Kitty Hawk. And uh, I did a full Indian Ocean deployment. As a matter of fact, we were one of the first groups in, that uh, spent over 90 days deployed at sea, which allowed us to actually drink a beer on board the ship. Crazy. Um, I did so and uh, got back from there and then was immediately assigned to the Defense Language Institute for Russian, which I went off and studied, and then left the Defense Language Institute and was sent to the National Security Agency, where I ended up serving in the Naval Security Group activity there as a direct support, which meant a deployable cryptologic officer and a part of the submarine program. And, but before I left the submarine program, I literally spent, you know, uh, uh, time in South America. And that ended up turning into actually landing on Grenada during our incursion in there. And I went back to the Naval Security Group activity where I was uh, deployed on multiple submarine trips um, that at the time were top secret assignments. Um, did three of those, um, roughly almost 300 days under the water, three different assignments. Uh, they each, each trip has what's called a workup, then a certification, then the deployment. And you know, the workups were three to four days, the certifications were three, were three to four days. And then the deployment for me was anywhere from 79 days to, I had one deployment, that was a 90 day deployment. So I did approximately uh, close to 300 days. It was probably 280 something days under the water. Um, came back and uh, ended up being assigned, um, transferred at the National Security Institute to another unit, which was a unit that was responsible for all the Hebrew, Farsi, and Arabic linguists in the military, an organization called Classic Paladin. And this was back before we really had a Middle East issue going on. We had not fought our first Persian Gulf War. Um, and, you know, I got assigned, I was the youngest officer to literally uh, be the OIC of Classic Paladin, um, took that over. And deployed around the world multiple times, uh, just visiting the, the locations where our troops were assigned to. Um, and uh, then transitioned from there to, I while at Classic Palin, I had started this initiative where I was speaking around the country on my leave time. And that's really what ended up creating me as Montel Williams, the talk show host, because I uh, ended up taking leave, going away, visiting schools, visiting different places, speaking. 
And that turned into a program all into itself. Um, and uh, it was so rewarding to me that I decided to go ahead and step off active duty and do that full time. When I came back to duty, I was immediately promoted to uh, the rank of lieutenant commander. Um, and I should say I was um, what's called deep selected, but I was selected in the reserves, deep selected to the tank commander. So I, I achieved the rank of 04 as an officer, and I achieved the rank of E4 as you know, an enlisted man. But that's, you know, was my career really in the military. And then for the next couple of years after I started this program speaking, I did that on and off temporary active duty. So my career spanned a 22-year period of time, though I have almost 18 and a half years of service. So it's really uh, strange, but, um, you know, some of the best times of my life, some of the greatest memories of my life while I served this country and very, very proud to have served. And like so many of our veterans out there today, you know, there are, again, 17.4 million veterans in the U.S. right now, and, you know, 1.64 million of them are female veterans who, you know, served this country honorably and, you know, did so with the one thought in mind that was supporting and defending the Constitution of the United States. And so that's why on this Veterans Day, we need to celebrate them. We need to celebrate them. We need to honor them. We need to show them our respect. But we need to do so by doing more than just saying thank you for your service. We need to reach out and, and try to see if maybe we can help and give some assistance. Um, I've been asked, well, what are you talking about? Martha? What do I do if I want to help a veteran? I don't know any programs to be involved in. You don't need to be involved in a program. Why not find out if that a veteran that lives in your apartment building or lives down the street from you, um, whether or not, you know, um, maybe tonight when you, you cook a meal, you, know, you can cook a little extra, put a plate together, take it down there and say, hey, you know, I was just thinking about you. I want to say thank you for your service, but I really want to show you. So this is a meal for you and your family. You know, take the day off and enjoy yourself. Take a break. You know what I mean? Watch some TV. Just chill out. Know that we thank you for what you've done for us. Maybe you know a veteran family, you know, down the street that's a young vet, a young wife, small child. Maybe you and your family can volunteer to babysit this coming Friday so that they can have a date night. They may not have had one for the last couple of years because he's been deployed so much or she's been deployed so much. Maybe, you know, you can find out about that veteran who lives down the street who's, you know, one of the two of them are deployed. And, you know, maybe when you cut your grass this Saturday, you just go down the street and cut their grass. We can do so many things to put a smile on someone's face that it's so much simpler than we think. You don't need to have an organization. You don't need to have program you can just do it and something like that comes so much from the heart that believe me that veteran will respect that that veteran will thank you for that he'll be honored that you took the time to think about him enough to want to recognize his sacrifice for you you know 
we've lived in such tumultuous times over the course of the last year, prepping for an election that just took place. Now, a lot of people have forgotten the fact that we still have a 20 plus suicide a day rate for our veterans. 20 plus. Think about that. That's absolutely incredible. And I believe so asinine at a time when there's so much can be done. So easily we could solve this problem if we just put our mind to it. You know, we know that we have, you know, somewhere around, you know, we don't know, somewhere around 46, 47,000 homeless veterans in America today. But out of that 46,000 homeless veterans, you know, if we really just took the time to start looking at their plight directly, we have bases all over this country, some of which we've closed recently. They have barracks. They have places that they could live. We could put them up. We could reopen them. Our VA receives an astronomical amount of money. It's not like the Veterans Association is broke. We've been paying. And there's money that could be administered the right way to get those veterans off the street, but we just don't do it. I don't want to spend any of the day spitting in the face of any of our veterans. I don't want to rehash some of the ugly of this last year things that have been said, things that have been done, disrespect that has been shown towards those who serve us. I want to take the time today to maybe ask you to reach in as deeply as you can. And today, if you decide to go out and say thank you to your service, thank you for your service to someone, Stop and wait to see what they have to say back to you. Don't just say it and turn around and walk away. Engage them. Have that conversation. See if there's something you could do to help if they need help. And we must recognize for a fact that out of our veterans that are back and out of our veterans that are part of our society, the vast majority of them are doing well vast majority of them have not suffered severe consequences of their service. But there are so many of them who have. And we need to finally stop, recognize that America wouldn't be America if it wasn't for those men and women who have put their lives in harm's way to guarantee the freedoms that we have. Oh, and before I take off and go away, I want to make sure you know that I'm dedicating today's podcast to the Fisher House. And I want you to go up on fisherhouse.org on the website and take a look. You will see that this is probably, I think, one of the greatest charities that this country has ever had. Fisher House, for those of you who don't know, for lack of better terminology, Fisher houses are the Ronald McDonald houses of the VA hospitals. It's a place where family members of our veterans 
who are being treated in the hospital can go and stay for free to help support that veteran at their most critical time of need. The fish houses are beautiful palatial mansions almost that you know, allow each family their own individual room. They have community kitchens, community dining areas, so that the veteran's family can be supported by other veteran's families who are going through something similar. And while the veteran is staying at the hospital, you know, the family who doesn't make a lot of money, these are families who don't have a lot of resources, often can't spend time with their loved one because, you know, they can't afford to stay in a 40, 50, 60, 100, 200, $300 a night hotel for the duration of surgery and rehab that their veteran family member has to go through. And so the Fisher House fills some of that void by providing a free place for them to stay so that they can be close and be there to be a part of the healing process. And they do so and they build these places and provide these services out of the goodness of your hearts, out of the goodness of our hearts. You know, they collect donations and try their best to make sure that a veteran in his deepest time of need can be surrounded by their family to help support them through their recovery process. And so if you can, I want you to please reach out, go up on the website, fisherhouse.org, find out where there's a little button there that tells you how to donate and donate what you can. There's even an opportunity for you to take old flight miles that you have that haven't expired and donate those because they use those flight miles to help fly families in. And they also have a program where they literally are donating to the college education fund of some veterans' children. And they award those, fund, those, those scholarships every single year. So please, if you can, Give, give to the Fisher House. You know that your money will go to a good cause. I believe this is one of the only five-star charities in America today, one of the only. They've been vetted out. They've been proven to do what they say they do. I happen to be a board member of Fisher House and I'm very proud to be able to serve there and help and make sure that our veterans get the extra support that they need. Thank you so much. Have a wonderful Veterans Day.